All right. Well, good morning, all. As you can tell, our topic this morning, if you're reading anyway, is what is discipleship? I put that in quotes for reasons, and those are reasons we'll talk about probably next week. Core ingredients of discipleship, what is it? What makes up discipleship? Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to be with us? Heavenly Father, again, we come before your throne, this throne of majesty, power. It's an infinite throne. You're an eternal God. Your wisdom is unmatched. No one can be your counselor. Lord, you're just full of glory and grace, and we thank you for that. And here we are, a pack of sinful human beings. Lord, most of us, many of us, most of us, hopefully all of us, you've spoken to our hearts. You've showed us your glory. You've not left us in the world. You've not left us without God and without hope. Lord, as we come this morning, come before your word, just ask you to refresh our souls as to what is the heart and soul of Christianity. Being a disciple of your son, whom you sent into this world, to buy us from darkness, from sin, from death, and to bring us light and life and truth and love and fellowship with you. Lord, give us all right hearts to humble ourselves before your word. We're such fickle creatures. Lord, allow us to collect our thoughts, our minds. We just be clear, focused, not distracted. Lord, we're not worrying about this or that because the next hour, 45 minutes, whatever, um, those things will just have to take care of themselves. We're here before your throne, all of us together. It's a special time. It's a time when you meet with your saints and just pray, Lord, that that's what you would do is meet with us. When we pray and worship, Lord, we glorify you. We <clears throat> give the honor and glory that's due to your name. We express it with our whole of our created being. Lord, when we pray, you hear us but this is that time when you call upon us to hear you. And just pray we can do it with honesty, with truth, with humility, genuine humility. Lord, so often we're worried about who's right and who's wrong. It doesn't matter. You're right. The rest of us just need to figure that out and come to it. And so make your word plain to us, clear to us, uh, that your version of the gospel, your truth of the gospel, would triumph in our minds and hearts. Lord, if there's any here this morning that don't know you, just pray that this would be a morning where this is not gobbledygook to them. This is not just a bunch of words, a bunch of preacher words, a bunch of religious words. This is a time when they meet with Jesus Christ. Lord, you would call upon them to come and follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is discipleship? What are its core ingredients? Someone might ask, well, why this topic? Why now? Why in a service? We'll probably be on this topic for several weeks, so why so much focus on this topic? Those questions deserve a reasonable answer. Well, first of all, it's no secret, if you've been here at New Covenant very long, last two months that there's been discussions on this topic. Opinions have been presented here and there, and folks have been talking about it. That's a good thing, by the way. I'm not afraid of opinions. I'm not afraid of opinions I consider to be wrong. Um, We can always come to the Bible, as long as everybody always comes to the Bible and says, okay, what does the Bible say? And is willing to take the time to look, look at it, evaluate it, And all of us humble ourselves before that word. So this has been a topic discussed, and in that sense it's been discussed so much, it's really a public issue. And so me and Chris knew we were going to have to deal with it sooner or later, publicly, because it's abroad out there. 
Now, you've got to remember that in the first century, and I've said this before, but I want to remind you again, in the first century, false teachers had to come to your city to teach false teaching. Today, all they've got to do is put up a website. That's all they've got to do. And whereas if a false teacher came to a city talking about Christianity, usually cities, villages weren't all that big, and, well, the leaders of churches could go, hey, we got someone here who's teaching some false things. But that's not so today. I have no idea what websites you're going to during the week. I have no idea at all. And so when I address things, I have to address things knowing that you have the Internet at your fingertips, not just that things are happening here, but that you have the Internet. And every crazy idea ever invented by the Prince of Darkness is being spread by somebody out there, usually with smooth and fair speech. Because when people aren't busy dealing with their own Christian lives and trying to cultivate holiness, they spend their time being busy about false teaching with smooth and fair speech. So there's those issues out there, and we'll talk about that on down the road. But in the end, because of these discussions, someone, by by the way, brought it up to me yesterday. I'm like, oh, okay. This is still a living discussion. Because there's been differences of opinion, what we want to do is avoid elephants. I want to have fellowship with everybody here. I want to have open-hearted fellowship with everybody here. I don't want to sit down and look over at you, but there's this big, giant elephant in between us. All right? So today is a getting rid of elephants, at least getting a start at it. That way, at the end, if there's disagreement, at least it's been presented. Okay? Doing it with an attempt to bring unity. And again, I want all of us, every one of us, me, Chris, everybody here, we need to humble ourselves before the Scripture. And so we'll be spending time in those scriptures. Now, the reason it is an issue that needs clarification, the church is confused on many things. I think we all know that. It's not an accusation, it's an observation. I'm never thrilled when people come and they say, well, the church is failing on this, and the church is failing on that. And I'm like, usually what they say the church is failing at is not something that the church is actually supposed to be doing. (laughs) The church is not supposed to be fixing the social order. So if the social order is failing, it's not because the church is failing. It's because the social order is full of sin. And if you look at history, that's the way the social order goes. Up, down, up, down. Church is not failing. It's not our job. It's not our mission. But the church has been, church history, you just had a class this morning and classes before, that there's been a lot of confusion even on very important doctrines. And if you think that the debate about the Trinity is over now, then you've been misinformed. The Trinity debate is alive and well today. It's taken different terms. Feminism has wanted to call God she. That is an attack on the Trinity. They're going to say that God just, you know, sometimes presents himself as this and sometimes presents himself as that. It's called modalism. It just has now a feminist suit of clothes in our day, and it's huge. There's other debates that are going on about the Trinity. I was surprised to hear it. About 10 years ago, someone said, yeah, there's a new book out on the doctrine of the Trinity. I thought, well, I thought that was settled back, you know, hundreds of years ago. I'm like, no. And I read one of the best books I ever read on the Trinity. It was really great. So the church is confused on many things, confused about sovereignty, confused about the second coming of Christ. So to say that the church is confused on this topic shouldn't really be a surprise, nor should it be considered mean or mean-spirited to make that observation. And the more things are subjective, such as discipleship tends to have a very subjective bent to it because it's actually a big topic. The more things are subjective, not objective, Justification, that doctrine, is objective. You can clarify it in the scriptures. But sanctification, how to be holy, that's a mess. These things become more challenging because people put in their pragmatic input. 
and get with loud voices proclaim that they know what they're talking about. As it says in Timothy, that they know not neither what they say nor what they confidently affirm. Just because someone has confidence in their affirmation, don't think they're credible. Don't necessarily be credible. What's the content of what they're presenting? Pragmatism abounds. Things are usually generalized because the average person just isn't analytical. They want to live their Christian life and to sit down and cross all the T's and dot all the I's that teachers are supposed to actually be doing. That's just not their task, but they want to function, and so they grab what they can and run with it. And that's fine, but when they get challenged, they ought to at least say, oh, okay, I'm glad for the clarification. I don't have problems with people needing to be clarified. I have problems with people who object to it. So pragmatism abounds, and so there's this great need out there and perhaps even here for clarification. The final thing, why this topic, is because this topic is gigantic. This topic is huge. This topic is the heart and the soul of Christianity. To be off base here is to be off base on the heart and soul of things. To be clear is to be clear on the heart and soul of things. It's core to Christianity and its importance and significance cannot be overstated. So that's why we're dealing with this topic. Now, these are the three reasons I'm giving. How are we going to approach this topic? Because it's going to be over several weeks. First of all, we're going to look at a brief definition. What's the ballpark that we're in when we're talking about discipleship? It's huge and big, but, you know, it's got some boundaries somewhere or at least some definition to it, some description. So we'll look at that definition. Then we want to illustrate its significance from Scripture. Why are we going to expend effort to clarify and to understand this topic and to see it as important? Well, it's because it is, and we're going to see that in the Bible. Then we want to get a working terminology. It's one thing to have a definition, but... What is good terminology? Now, the doctrine of the Trinity, when you think about it, we are so familiar with that doctrine, and we have such clear assumptions about it that it's like in cement. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons. And that word Trinity is a non-biblical title. It's not an unbiblical title. It's just a non-biblical title. And as a non-biblical title, it's kind of like a container, a jar in which you put the basic things that it's pointing to. The word trinity is triune, so hence it's actually pointing to something that's real. And so in that bottle, that jar, that briefcase that's marked trinity, we know what's supposed to be in there. But that's not so when it comes to discipleship. While Trinity is pretty much self-defining, given the historical context, we find in our day that the word discipleship, even disciple is somewhat misunderstood, but discipleship just is a jar that people throw almost anything they want to in it. They say it's in the jar, therefore it's discipleship, and that's what I'm running with. Discipleship is not self-defining. It's an unbiblical term. You can use it. I've used it. I intend to continue to use it. But I want to use it with the clarity that the Bible brings to the topic. So that when I say discipleship, there's a common understanding in our body. There's a unity in our body about what that word, that term basically means because it's the core of Christianity. I kind of think if it's the core, you need to be clear. You need to be correct. And so we want to look, what is the real working terminology? What does it mean? What are the core ingredients of discipleship according to the scripture? There's a number of things. I had about 15 things jotted down. I was trying to group them into smaller categories so I don't have to go through 15 things, but... 
There's some core ingredients to it without which you really don't have discipleship. And then as we've talked about, there's popular perspectives. Popular concepts that generalize rather than clarify. They carry the basic tune. I looked at some this morning. I googled, googled uh, a definition for discipleship. And of course, everything else in the world comes up on the side. And it was just interesting, sometimes humorous, to watch all the descriptions. Some of them were really good, a couple of them. The people who had less items were better. There's seven things, and you're like, seven things? Man, that's, gosh, big. And they'd have some things about what the Bible says discipleship is, but it was oftentimes off-key, and that's the problem. It's not that folks aren't carrying the basic tune. It's just they're off-key. I've been in a church where <clears throat> there was a person who would sing, and they, man, they were just you know, rejoicing in the Lord, and they would sing out loud, and they were one of the voices you could really hear and really carry throughout the, the group of folks that were singing, and they were always off-key. And I was always having to say, Lord, I know this person loves you, and they're expressing it, I'm personally not much of an expressive person, so when I see somebody who's expressive, I'm like, okay, good for them. I, can't, I just can't do it. I can't get myself to do it. Not in me. So they're expressive. They're off key, and sometimes it would be like, okay, I don't know what key to sing because they're so loud. So if you want to be loud and off key, hey, I'm, I'm thanking the Lord for you. So don't, don't worry about that. There's a lot of folks out there who have these opinions about Christian doctrine, and they're loud. And because they're loud, a lot of people listen, but they don't realize the person is off-key. A lot of popular celebrity preachers are like that. That's why I don't listen to them. The only time I listen to a celebrity preacher is just to check out what's going on in the Christian world. I learned a long time ago that I'll have a much better understanding of the Word of God just to read it, think about it. A lot of celebrity preachers in the New Testament, a lot of them. First Corinthians, what, two, three, four has to address them. Philippians has to address them. And there's people out there singing off key, so be careful that you don't get caught up with their tune. Popular perspectives we'll be dealing with. So definitions, significance, terminology, ingredients, perspectives. This morning, start with a brief definition. What is a disciple? What does this word mean? It's Greek word mathetes. There's a verb, methetousata. Interesting verb. It's a mouthful. But it basically means in the New Testament. It has backgrounds in the Greek world, Hellenistic world. It has backgrounds... Not kind of, but not really in the Old Testament. There's, there's what you would say, it's uh, got some comparison with the Old Testament where you see the differences. Really accentuates Jesus. In the Old Testament, people didn't follow a person, they followed the law. They followed Moses only because he was the one God spoke to. So they didn't focus on, well, I'm following Moses. They, follow, they said, I'm following Moses' teaching. Not so in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you follow a person first and foremost, and you follow his teachings. Now, this personal follow of Jesus, you could say someone's an adherent, a follower. It's very central and very basic to what it is to be a disciple. Matthew four eighteen two through 20. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, the northern Israel, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. When Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, and you cannot know him unless he really comes and, and makes himself known to you. 
If you're struggling with knowing God, just tell God. Just be honest. Say, God, you know, I'm just having a hard time here. And if you don't reveal yourself to me, I will never know you. I can't. You have to make yourself known. But whenever Jesus talks to someone, and you got lots of people really out in the Christian world. I used to be in Pentecostalism. Everybody was talking to Jesus. The core thing, the first thing that Jesus is going to say to every human being that comes to talk to him, that he talks back to, is going to be, follow me. That's his call. This is the essence of the gospel. Now we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What are we saying? You need to go to Jesus. And you need to follow him and be saved by him. We see this, say the same things, we just put a spin on it that's further down the line in the New Testament. When Jesus is personally talking to someone, he is saying, believe on me, but he's saying something more, something deeper, something far more gripping, far more demanding, far more specific. Don't just believe on me. Follow me. Has Jesus said that to you? God who is at the right hand of God right now in the heavenlies somewhere out there beyond the cosmic horizon? Has he come by his present Holy Spirit into your heart and life? and said to you personally to follow him. That is what Christianity is about. That's why Buddhism is just not another way to God because if you come to know God, he's going to say, you need to go to my son. And the son is going to tell you, you need to follow me, not Buddha, not anybody else. Not Muhammad. Not Abraham, not the latest guru of New Age Spiritism. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ from him personally is always to you to follow him. Now, in this case, these men had a calling beyond just following Jesus and ending up in a new heavens and a new earth. He says, I got something for you to do. You follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to later empower you by the Holy Spirit to do this work, and I'm going to be with you in that work. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Follow me? They followed him. What's the true response to Jesus Christ? When he comes into your life, you personally, and says to you, you want to get to heaven? You want to be with me and God forever? Then follow me here and now. What's your response supposed to be? You don't debate, you don't dicker, you don't discuss. Just follow them. That's all you got to do. If you want to pray a prayer, amen, do it. Lord Jesus, I will follow you. You've called on me to follow you, and I'm going to do it. But this is a decisive, definitive thing in the life of a human being. Jesus comes and confronts a human being and says, follow me at that point. There is a total change, a change in allegiance, a change in direction, a change in focus, a change in love, a change in purpose, a change in meaning, a change in identity. You're no longer going to follow the world and all that the world has to say and all of its pomp and splendor or all of its promotions you're going to follow Jesus Christ it's a decisive break with the world and a decisive turning to the Lord Jesus to follow him no matter what he says no matter where he takes you 
You're going to humble yourself before the living God. You realize your bankruptcy as a person. You've come to the place in your life, usually he brings you there to see that the world is just an empty place. The tinsel and glitter of it is just fake. Everybody talks about fake news? Well, the whole world's fake. Promises what it can never deliver. You turn from that and you go to follow Jesus. This is discipleship. Now, Peter and Andrew had most likely encountered Jesus before. We see this in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 40. There's another encounter that's different from this one. So we have at least two encounters. It's not an error in the Bible. It's not a made-up story. There were multiple encounters. Now, I know there's that, what the, the movie, the series, The Chosen out there. I've listened to a couple seasons. Sometimes you're like, I just don't think that that one's correct every now and then. Again, as I've said before, you got a tough job when you make a movie about Jesus and all of his followers because you've got to put character structure and inner reactions and relationships to all of these people and places and situations and events that the Bible is not giving you information about. And so you have to, you know, sort of read in your own stuff to have a good script. And so I don't want to be mean to them. Sometimes I'm like, ah, I don't want that stuck in my head. That's just not Jesus. I always remember there was, one, there was one on the Gospel of John. It was really good. They just followed exactly the words of John, but Jesus had pearly teeth the whole time. I was like, no, I don't think so. And they say, it just bugs me. I'm just like, no, that's not the picture. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. But I do recommend The Chosen. I don't know where it's going. I can't say what it's going to become, but... The two seasons I've watched were very helpful at times to see how the scripture that seems to contradict isn't a contradiction. I was just thinking that, it, you know, in this little box in my mind, and they, they play those things out and show how they're both true. The Gospel of John's perspective and presentation of Peter meeting Jesus and this presentation fit. Because they are situations that were different, different encounters. And that's why Peter immediately follows. It's not like, oh, Jesus, who are you? Oh, sure, I'll follow you. He had met him before. He had encountered him before. And Jesus is also at this time in Matthew 4 coming to sort of gather his group of disciples, his apostles together, because he's about to go on his great Galilean missionary tour, as it were, his ministry. And so he's collecting those 12 with him. And so he may have known them for months. He may have spoken to them before. But now he's saying, hey, I'm calling you to step away from your profession, which is a good profession, because I have something special for you to do, fishers of men, and I want you to see how it's done. Now they followed him physically. They got up. They left their nets. They left their father. But I'm pretty sure they'd had discussions with their father before. So it wasn't like, you know, dad's going, hey, what's happening here? Pretty sure there were discussions before. But this physical following of Jesus points to a greater inward and spiritual following. And how do we know that? Because after the Gospels are over and the book of Acts begins, and Peter factors large in the book of Acts, Jesus is gone physically from earth. He's in heaven. But Peter is still following Jesus. So this following of Jesus is more than just a physical following. It's a spiritual following. It's an inward personal commitment that continues whether you're in his physical presence or not. And as the Gospel of John ends, you know, blessed are those who have seen and believed, but more blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. Discipleship doesn't require the physical presence of Jesus. Now again, just continuing with the narrative, he calls Peter and his brother. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, and the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he explained to them the doctrine of justification. He did not. Now he's going to later. But that's not the essence and heartbeat of Christianity. 
It's really good to be clear on the doctrine of justification, but that's not where things begin. They begin with your own personal change of allegiance from self and the world to Jesus Christ, to follow him. He called them, and they followed him. This is where discipleship begins. Now we'll later look at some of the characteristics of following Jesus, but for now, it just needs to be pointed out that this is a core aspect of being a disciple. In the Gospel of John, we have a, another encounter, and this is the, a different encounter. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, chapter 1, 35 through 37. So these were people who were following John. And he looked at Jesus as he walked. John looks over at Jesus. Jesus is walking by. We don't know the situation. Go watch The Chosen, see what they do with it. Maybe it's, maybe it's a good presentation. And he looked at Jesus as he walked, John the Baptist did, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now this is fresh off of a discourse by John about Jesus, John the Baptist, in this gospel. A discourse of the glory of the person of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. And John had said these things, and these men had heard these things already. And here's Jesus walking by, and John turns and says, that's him. That's the one I've been talking about. Here's the Lamb of God. Here's the Lamb of God who fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant and take away the sins of the world. This is the Lamb of God who will fulfill all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament that the nations will glory in Yahweh. He's the Lamb of God. And he's going to take away the sins of the world. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now, we've seen this before, you know, but here it's not Jesus calling here it's John pointing out who Jesus is. And see, this is evangelism. This is how you evangelize people who aren't following Jesus. You point to Jesus and you point out his glory. You say, this is who he is. What are you going to do with it? And if God is there at work, they will be filled with a conviction of the Spirit, maybe in terror because they see their sin in the light of God's glory, maybe with joy because they finally find the pearl of greatest price they've been looking for. But whatever it is, they don't just see a man walking, they just don't see a physical person walking with, if you're in the 1800s, the flowing hair. If you're in the 21st century, the probably a more Middle Eastern picture. They saw something spiritually. See, earlier in this chapter, John says that, you know, he came to, the, to, the, to his own and his own received him not. Jesus, the word, became flesh. And John says, we beheld his glory. Glory as an only begotten of the Father. They saw in this person walking in the dust of Galilee the glory of the eternal Son and only one from the Father. They saw his glory. And you see, that's what coming to Christ is. You see for who he is. You see him for who he is and you see his glory because he reveals himself to you. And he says, follow me in your heart. And you go, amen. Amen. I'm going to follow you, not as one, one preacher in the second great awakening. We go to churches, and in one church they recorded his message, and at the end of his message, and you got to remember at the great awakening, everybody was a Christian, kind of like South Carolina, everybody's a Christian. And God had to just bring hard preaching at times. 
That's why you'll hear some preachers that you're like, wow, that's pretty intense. Because that's what it takes to break uh, Pharisees out of their <coughs> confidence. So he's preaching to these people who were Christians all their life, halfway covenant and all that business. But he said at the end of his message, he said, I'm not calling you to come to Christ to get something from him. I'm calling you to come to Christ to love him, to serve him, to honor him, and to follow him because he's worthy. Because of who he is. Because he's the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. He's the eternal son who's taken on a true humanity. He bore the sin of the world and is now at the right hand of God. Come to him because of who he is. Not just what you can get from him. And that's the response of these men. They weren't coming to Jesus to get something. They weren't coming to Jesus just to have their life fixed. Oh, I've got a miserable life. He'll fix me. Or I'm having a bad life. You know, come and get some health and wealth from him. They came to him because he's the Lamb of God. Because of who he is. And they said, we're going to follow you, Jesus, to the ends of the earth. Some of them didn't know their own limitations at that point, like Peter, but he was going to learn it. But it's his heart. I'm going to follow Jesus all my days. That is discipleship. Further on down the next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus just simply said to him, follow me. Is that what you're doing? It is easy to become distracted by the world. It's easy to justify just a normal American lifestyle. I mean, if I'm not called to preach, teach, go on some mission field, I'm stuck here in America, and I got to live like an American, I got to pay American house prices, not house prices from Africa. I got to have driver's licenses. I got to have insurance. I mean, just all the stuff you got to do in America that people over in Africa can't conceive of when they think about all these rich Americans with barrels of money. It's like you don't understand. Everybody's got their hand in our barrels of money and taking it from us. It takes barrels of money to live in America. We just forget, though, this simple statement, follow me, and what it means, the blessedness of it, the significance of it, the all-encompassingness of it. Jesus personally seeks to call Philip. He comes to find him. He says, follow him. And that's all he said. That's all he said. And Philip did. Two words from Jesus can last a lifetime. Two words. Follow me. To hear from God, two words will bring you into eternal glory. So following Jesus is more than just a core ingredient of discipleship. It is its essence and its entire framework. When you think of a definition for discipleship, and if you're like me, usually it's a puzzling question because what we don't realize, it's so stinking big, the answer. And people try to reduce it to three principles of discipleship. I'm like, try about 50, you know, but try the entire New Testament for discipleship. That's why to reduce it to some simplistic version is just kind of missing the point, but here's it's, core, here's its framework, here's what it's about. So being a disciple isn't just simply being a personal follower of Jesus, it's also following his teachings, it's being a learner, and so if you get a basic definition, you can go out and find one, you know, Google it, read it in a book, but it's usually like, if you're like me, it's kind of like still puzzling, I'm like, yeah, okay, I can read that, follow Jesus and, and, his, and his teachings it just seems 
I don't know, like anticlimactic when you define it like that. But in this statement, follow Jesus is everything and follow his teachings, that's like at the beginning and end of it. Matthew 5, 1 through 2, when Jesus saw the crowds, now Jesus is about to do what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's just called the four apostles. And then it says he goes out in the power of the Spirit and he has this great, this great ministry in Galilee, signs and wonders everywhere, teaching everywhere. And if you want to know what he's teaching, well, here it is. So the Sermon on the Mount, you know, is it an actual event that happened? Or is Matthew just simply using a first century literary device to show you a sampling of what happened? Now, some people think that the latter, you know, is really bad. That's a horrible place to go, and it's going to, you know, undo the, the inspiration of the Bible and all that. No, it doesn't. But I still happen to believe it actually happened. This is just one event of it. There were many. Jesus was everywhere preaching. That's why when the gospel writers, again, remember, when the gospel writers are gathering together the New Testament, if Jesus taught something in 50 places and there are 20 witnesses that come and tell you what he said, but they're all going to have a little bit different story because, well, he taught maybe a little bit differently, he used maybe different words, he adjusted himself to his audience and circumstances. Well, you're going to hear different versions. Well, that's not, you know, the Bible having conflict. It's called eyewitness testimony of things that were said over and over again in many different places. And Matthew had to go, well, I've heard 17 versions of this. Which one am I going to use? Not which one is true. They're all true. But which one am I going to use? So he picks this one. And, well, you know, Mark picked that one. And, you know, John picked that one. There's no conflict. It's eyewitness testimony, different variations. I remember I was with my daughter, uh, Dawn, and Luke were riding bikes on Fripp Island, and Luke's riding in front, and Dawn's next to me, and granddaughter's in the back, Tess. And <clears throat> so Dawn look, looks at Luke, and he says, she says something to Luke, very specific. And then he didn't do it, and she turns to me and she says, Dad, what am I supposed to do? I said this to him. And he's not doing it. What, you know, she's just kind of you know, throwing her hands up in the air, as you will. <clears throat> Good grief, what's going on here? And then she tells Tess what she said to Luke. Now, this happened within a minute's time by the person who said it. And she gave three different versions of what she told Luke. Three. By the same person, the same event, within one minute. That's why when people say, oh, there's contradictions in the, in the Gospels, I'm like, are you kidding me? Seriously? Think about how reality happens. We don't even keep our own stories straight. But here's Jesus. He's, he comes and he's it's an example of his teaching. And Jesus saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. So when you follow Jesus, you have to also... Come under his teaching, his instruction. And here we see his ministry beginning in 5.1 with a discourse on discipleship. And it's an excellent, one of the five discourses in Matthew, just an excellent presentation of what is discipleship. If you want to know what discipleship is and what it means and what it demands, well, read the Sermon on the Mount. That's discipleship. So when someone says, oh, we're going to have a class on discipleship, I'm like, every time you open the Word of God, you're doing discipleship. You don't have to have a special class. You just got to open the Bible. Discipleship is teaching the Word of God to people so that they will be clear in their minds and their hearts and they will follow God in truth and righteousness and love. That's discipleship. It's that simple. Tons of ways in which that truth is conveyed and tons of ways in which people are taught and every way is legitimate and no way is discipleship versus other way not being discipleship. It's all the same stuff. 
But the point of it is, is that you're having the word of God come to a follower of Jesus, and that word comes with authority and instructs them as to how to think, what to believe, and how to live. Now, if we were to be fancy-dancy and be a scholar, we might say, ah, see, this began to teach. Kind of an odd way to say it, right? Wouldn't you have just said, Jesus sat down and taught them. Why does it say he began to teach? Well, we'll look at that in a minute, why he might have said that. So following Jesus involves hearing his word, embracing his word, and keeping his word. And that's what that Sermon on the Mount's all about. It's about Christian character. I mean, just go through its basic categories and topics. We'll be doing that, but just think through. What are the categories there? That's being a disciple of Jesus. So a true disciple follows Jesus, but follows Jesus specifically according to his words. You can't be a disciple if you're not following his words. If you're saying you're a disciple, I'm a Christian, Christians in Antioch, where the disciples at Antioch were first called Christians, Acts. If you say you're a disciple, but you're not following his words, then you're a hypocrite. And hypocrites go in the lake of fire. That's a real thing. If that shocks you, good. You need to be shocked. You cannot say you're a disciple and not follow the words of Jesus. Matthew 26, 1. This is interesting. Here's where the scholars would probably say something. I didn't get a chance to look, but I'm sure they would say this. This is Matthew 26. We've gone from Matthew 5 to 26. Jesus has just finished his eschatological discourse on the Mount of Olives. Everybody gets all excited about it. It's a great thing to get excited about the coming of Jesus until you read about the judgment and you go, okay, better sober up on this matter. But he now shifts his focus from that final discourse, five of them in Matthew that structure Matthew, from teaching to his death on the cross or really just pursuing his death on the cross. He's going to talk about it and do it. And so this is one of those literary devices, and, it, and these days i got so much going on in my brain. When you're older, you don't forget things. You've got so much to remember. you just got to dig deep and deep and deep to find it. So there's a word for this in which you have sort of these big parentheses, and the scholars will talk about it, and so... You have Jesus began to teach in 5.1 and he finished his words in 26.1 and everything in between is teaching on discipleship. It's a big topic, isn't it? You can't reduce it to a class. You can't reduce it to a methodology because it's none of those things. Jesus finished all his words, he said to his disciples. Then, of course, the grand passage. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the end of Matthew. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What a passage. Man, you can jump from here and go through the whole entire New Old Testament for weeks, months, maybe years, which, unfortunately, sometimes I've tried to do. Um, and you go through the Old Testament and show what's in this one verse. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Hopefully, your mind goes to Psalm 2. I've set my king upon my holy hill. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 22, the middle of it just shifts into the reign of Christ. Isaiah 53, Jesus gets the reward of his suffering and is made the head of the nations. All those passages throughout the Old Testament that show that the Messiah must <coughs> suffer and die and enter into his glory. And that's what's in this passage. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Jesus owns the universe. Jesus as the God-man. Jesus is the one who has laid down his life and earned this place before God as Father and the angels and the entire universe. He has some things to say. When you get to this passage, you kind of pause. Jesus, the Jesus who has all authority in heaven and earth, the Jesus who is going to judge the nations, the Jesus 
before whom the entire group of humans, the entire human race will give account of themselves one day. Jesus who rules the nations with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. This is the Jesus who's saying these things. See, a lot of folks want to say what the church ought to be and what the church ought to do. And I'm telling you, shiver me timbers when I hear people say it. Because we're, just, we're going to look at in what, five, six sentences here. This is the mission of the church. And this mission has been stated in the clearest words ever by the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. Are you going to change those words? Are you going to tamper with that mission? Are you going to come up with your own version of what the church ought to be and do? Good luck on that. All authority in heaven and earth is not something to take lightly. He has this authority. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We are to make disciples. One of the three places in Matthew where you actually have the verb form of disciple. The other 70 places in Matthew are all nouns. Make disciples. Make disciples with all that that entails and involves. We are to go to all nations in every generation. This is to happen. Make disciples of all the nations. The myriad of promises of God saving the nations are now operational. They're now enforced. They're now functional. The kingdom of God is now here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, these are now to be pursued until Jesus returns. The gathering of the nations, the reign of God's king, and all that that means. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. Whenever you read a psalm that says, you know, the the nations will glory in the Lord, this is why. Whenever we present the gospel to someone, we are seeking to bring people to fulfill all of those things that are sung about in the Psalms. Oh, praise the Lord, Psalm, what is it, 117, shorter psalm in the Bible? Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye peoples. That's what's being fulfilled here. For his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Gwen was playing a great song this morning by a group, I always forget their name, King and something or other. It's just such a great song, and the faithfulness of the Lord. Anyway, I told her she needs to tell Dave because we need to be singing it. But anyway, the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever to all generations, to all those who come to follow God through his son, Jesus Christ. Go therefore, make disciples of the nations, It's not a process so much as this is really evangelism. Go and convert nations. Go and present the gospel so that people will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus and follow him. This is a conversion thing. And these people who are converted, these people who actually turn from their sin, turn from their self-will, turn from living to themselves and unto evil and sin and, and wickedness, turn to God, Turn to Jesus, turn to follow righteousness in God, you baptize him. The Greek is real clear. This them that get baptized are the disciples of the previous statement. So a person is already a disciple before they get baptized. Because you only baptize disciples, you only baptize believers. You only baptize people who have committed to follow Jesus Christ according to his word. Those are the only candidates for baptism. How people get confused on this, I don't know. Well, actually I do know, but whatever. It shouldn't happen. You baptize disciples. They have already turned. They've already been converted. And you, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, Matt's teaching on how this got confused. 
And what are you supposed to do with them? Well, then you have this ongoing process of teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You know, you 12, I've had you with me. I've shown you how it's done. I've shown you what to teach. And I'm going to be with you. But you teach them and you teach with authority. See, preaching and teaching is not a suggestion. We live in an age where people don't want to hear authoritative stuff. We have a whole generation that doesn't want to hear it. When people are not used to it, they react to it. Preachers of the gospel do not present suggestions. They present the commandment of the one who's at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 4.11 He that speaks, speak as the oracles of God. You speak with divine authority. You speak the word of God with all the sense that it's commandment, it's authoritative, it's something to be heard, and there's consequences in eternity if you do not hear. That's not because the preacher is inspired. It's because the words that he's presenting, if he's expounding the word of God, the words that he's presenting are inspired. This is authoritative teaching. This is teaching that says, I've commanded you, That's why you you can read in the pastoral epistles numerous times, these things command and teach. The Corinthians who were thinking they were more spiritual than Paul, Paul had to tell them, hey, this whole issue of the women's roles in the church, if you think you're spiritual, you think you got a better insight from God, you need to know the things I'm telling you are the commandment of the Lord. These are not to be dickered with. These are not to be debated. These are not to be manipulated. They are the command of the Lord who is at the right hand of God on high who will one day judge every human being. And Jesus said every idle word that you ever speak you will give an account of to him personally in the day of the Lord. Pretty sure he's going to filter out all the noise and get to the ones that matter. But every one of them are subject. It's authoritative teaching with discipleship And Jesus said, I'm with you in this to the end of the age. This is to be our focus until Jesus comes back. And again, my brothers and sisters, there's a lot of temptation to change the mission of the church, isn't there? A lot of temptation to say the church ought to be doing this and should be doing that. And gosh, we got all these people and all these resources. If we get them in a direction, we can accomplish great things. You can't do it. Don't do it. Never do it. It's not your church. You didn't die for it. Jesus did. And we don't get to take its resources and put it where we want to. We are told where to put these resources. We are told that we are to be making disciples by preaching the gospel to the nations and baptizing them and teaching them that is our mission until Jesus comes back. After that, you may have lots of other things to do. I hope to get a Starship package, a little package to build the little, those little engineering packs. I want one for the Starship Avalon. Anybody want to help me out? I'm fine. Otherwise, it'll take me about 2,000 years. But it's an awesome Starship. That's what I want. But until then, I'm preaching the gospel. So what is a disciple? It's a personal follower of Jesus and especially presented in the Gospels and Acts. Let's go through this quickly just to understand what we're dealing with. The terminology of disciple, when you take all of the words, here's where they occur. Notice in the narratives, I didn't want to have a separate column for Acts, so I just called them narratives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, those are narratives. Disciple, the term disciple occurs 252, in 252 verses 268 times. That's a lot. Okay? So it's a big deal. But notice it only occurs in the Gospels and in Acts. It doesn't occur in the Epistles because something else takes over and takes its place. It doesn't eliminate discipleship. It extends discipleship further into the permanent realities of the church of Jesus Christ. 
So it's not that there's no discipleship after Acts. It's that discipleship takes on different dimensions in the letters. If you were to look at the noun, there's the quantities for the noun of those 268 times, 264 of them are nouns, which tells you what? The focus of discipleship is not on activity. The focus of discipleship is on persons, a person's identity. You are a disciple. Now, that means you have things to think and say and do, but the focus of the term is a noun, not a verb. Discipleship, which is an unbiblical term, a good one if it's properly understood, tends to go, no, we want it to be verbal. We want verbs. We want things happening. And that's fine. But that's not how the New Testament presents it. It's clear about your identity, about who you are, and you act out of who you are. That's the focus. The form of disciple that's a verb only occurs four times, and really they almost act as nouns. As a verb, the focus is on becoming a disciple. The focus is not on the teaching that we think of or the activity of, you know, growing in grace and knowledge. That's not, that's not what it's used for. Growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord is, well, growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord. So discipleship, it could be tenuous in our usage. But I still think it's a good term. Properly understood. So that's the goal, to properly understand this term, to have it speak to us, to have it fill our souls, to have it clarify things to us. A disciple is a personal follower of Jesus and his teachings. And we see it primarily used in the Gospels and Acts. And so that's the sort of foundation of what we're doing, a brief definition. So again, this is the heart and soul of Christianity. Christianity is more than moral reformation. It's more than turning over a new leaf. Christianity is coming to Jesus, being saved by him, and living unto him according to his word. That's why coming to God by personal good works doesn't work. Good works don't work. It's It's good to reform your life, but that's not Christianity. Following Jesus is Christianity. All right. So if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, I urge you to. If you have done that, rejoice in the Lord. Maybe your life's a wreck, a mess. You don't know where you're going to be doing this afternoon. But you do know where you're going forever. And come build starships with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this grand reality that as sinners who are truly lost, when, when you pull back the, just the the surface of our heart and we see who we really are, we just go, how in the world could you ever save us? How in the world could you ever even look on us? How in the world could you not do anything but squash me like a bug? I'm just so dirtball rotten. And Lord, that's real. We talk about it among ourselves. And, but it's a real thing. Sin is so dark. We have been so dark. And yet, Lord God, you had mercy, true, real mercy, forever mercy, permanent mercy, gracious mercy on us. And you just haven't forgiven our sins. That would bring us to ground zero. You've given us Jesus Christ. You've given us the one who is the most dear thing to your heart. You've given us the greatest thing you could ever give. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing more real. There's nothing more significant than giving us your son. And Lord, just pray that we can be faithful followers. That we'll be clear about this, that a simple definition of discipleship doesn't seem obscure or too basic. It's, just, it's real, it's full, it's rich. And we will live there and stand there. And pray, Lord, that as a church, we've had different discussions. It's no secret. Just pray, Lord, that we can all come to a unity and a clarity, that your word will speak to every one of us. Lord, where we need correction, we'll be be corrected. Sounds simple, but it's hard to do in our personalities. But Lord, we'll just be corrected and just be happy to believe what your word says, to embrace it, to be thrilled by it, to live in it, to rejoice in it because it's well-pleasing to you. 
And Lord, let us remember that this discipleship comes with all authority. That this is not just a suggestion, this is not a matter of personal choice. That you, Lord Jesus, have defined discipleship and we don't get to redefine it. And Lord, may we all, in the fear of the Lord, with knees knocking together, submit to your word gladly. Lord, I'm always so happy. It's just like a work. If, if my programs don't work, I'm happy because I can fix my own programs. And Lord, if, if we've had incorrect thinking, we can fix that. Others are probably going to have a hard time doing it, but we can ourselves. And Lord, if that's the answer, then gosh, it's easy. So let us all be willing to hear your word and be filled with it and have joy in it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.